Amen. You can be seated. Again, welcome to Freedom. We will uh, invite our kids who are uh, in the first through the sixth grade who normally depart at this time to stay in the room with us on the last Sunday of the month. We all stay in together, so uh, we'll keep you in with us today. We're glad to get to do that. And uh, welcome to those who are joining us online. It is good to have you be a part of Worship with Freedom uh, online. And we are glad to finally be back streaming in HD again. If you have not had the opportunity to be away from here on a Sunday morning in the last six weeks to watch online, then you can't fully appreciate how glad we are to finally have the Internet working here. We put in the work order about eight months ago, and somehow that got mishandled, and it didn't get called until this week. And so... We have had some real challenges with our uh, freedom online, and uh, the very first Sunday, we can laugh about it now, it wasn't as funny at the time, but six weeks ago on our first Sunday in the building, uh, John and Jackie got creative when we realized that we didn't have any internet, and they just said, well, we'll just set up an iPad in here, and we'll just stream on Facebook. Well, that was a good idea, except we didn't get to do a trial run. And to this day, we don't know what happened. But all we know is that what got broadcast not only looked terrible, but something overlaid Candy Crush on top of it. So that the entire sermon, I was wrapped in a Candy Crush border. I had a good friend who watched it online that day who now says, I miss seeing you as a character on Candy Crush every week when you preach. So... We are really happy to hopefully be live online right now, streaming in HD, minus the Candy Crush border. I don't know how to even replicate that, but glad we can't. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Today we're wrapping up a series entitled Dare to be Different. I'm not sure, sure exactly when in life it begins, but it's really, really early on. That the world begins to train us and teach us, you better not be different. It's somewhere really early in life. Now, I know as parents, we tend to sort of focus in whenever our kids are going off to middle school and high school. And we start talking about things like peer pressure. And you've got to not just go along with your friends and be like them. But I want to tell you, the, the pressure from the world to fit in and look and act and sound and talk just like everybody else starts way before middle school and high school. Do you remember just how early it started? I had the uh, fairly unique experience uh, growing up of going to a small school where the school that I attended was small enough that every grade, kindergarten through 12th grade, met in the same building, and we only had one class for each grade. When I graduated, I graduated in a class of 42, and I think we were the largest class ever to graduate up to that point, to give you some idea of what a small school that I went to. And uh, my class had the distinction of we had, I think it was 18 of us, who had the unique experience of having gone to school together from kindergarten through 12th grade, just about, you know, half of the graduating class. We had known each other and been in not just the same grade but the same class for 13 years. So some of us knew each other really well. One of those original 18 that I met on the first day of kindergarten and I graduated with was a guy by the name of Henry. Henry was a good guy. He ended up being one of my two closest friends through middle school and high school, but... Henry had the misfortune of, uh, it it seemed like it at the time, of coming from a family that had a lot of kids and not a lot of money. And so he didn't wear the same clothes that everybody else wore for as long as I've known Henry. I've never seen him in brand name clothes. So he didn't quite fit in that way. And his 
when we were in kindergarten, we got out early, and so the moms would rotate carrying us back from school. We didn't ride the bus. We rode with a mom, and when his mom would drive, oh, it was you know kind of a rattle-trap vehicle, and so that sort of was a bad mark against him. But the worst thing of all, you don't want this in kindergarten. The worst thing was his mom always cut him with a buzz cut crew cut. His hair was about this long after every haircut. Now, in those days, nobody wore a crew cut unless you were, you know, a GI or something. It was just you didn't do that as a kid. And so Henry, as a result of not having the right clothes and the family car being an old car and worst of all having a crew cut he was the absolute reject of our class i I remember this in kindergarten and all the way through grade school henry was a reject good guy ended up being one of my closest friends but nobody wanted anything to do with henry because he didn't look like everybody else and he didn't dress like everybody else i'm not sure when it starts but it's at least by kindergarten and i i was thinking this week i know it starts even earlier than that because one of my two closest friends in grade school was a kid by the name of lomax and lomax just had the the one distinction about him other than his name being a little bit different that when we were i can remember when we were like in preschool we were you know four years old And his mom, for whatever reason, because this was not the style, she would always fix his hair, which that's a strike against you if you're a boy and mom fixes your hair, period. But I don't know if she used Lucky Tiger or which of the hair oils, but she greased him down good and gave him a good part, and he was a greaser all the time. Nice guy, one of my closest friends. But he always just had that slicked-down look, and so... You know, Lomax had a big strike against him. And in grade school, nobody wanted to be Lomax's friend other than David Hollis and myself. He was a reject because mom did his hair differently. Now, those may sound like absurd examples to us today, but you know the reality of that. If something set you apart when you were a kid, you would be rejected. You would be treated oddly if you didn't look like, dress like, act like everybody else around you. It's not coincidental. It is a part of a system that the enemy has put in place that says universally, you better fit in, you better be like everybody else. And in the face of that, Jesus has consistently said, I made you uniquely dare to be different. Jesus made you to be a person who stands out from the crowd. And that is the message that we're talking about today. Dare to be different. Dare to be the person, the unique person that Jesus made you to be. And so we pick up in 1 Peter chapter 2 in verse 9 where Peter says this. You are a chosen people. Everybody say, a chosen people. In in fact, I want you to look at your neighbor and tell them, you have been chosen. Oh, come on, give it conviction. There you go, thank you. You've been chosen. You haven't just been chosen by the team captain, you've been chosen by... You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He called you there. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. There he goes again. That, that, that phrase he keeps saying over and over. You are aliens 
you are foreigners and strangers in the world. So I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now, let's jump on down. We'll just pick up in verse uh, 21. To this you were called. There you go again. Everybody say it again. You were called. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, and when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. You see, that's what the world would do. That's what the norm looks like. But Jesus didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We'll stop there. In the midst of a world that is telling us, You better fit in. You better look like everybody else. Peter says, you've been called to be something different. You've been called to be something other than just a part of the crowd. You've been called by God, chosen by him. There is power in knowing that you've been chosen. One of the most powerful and fond memories that I have in all of high school happened in the second semester of my senior year. Miss Betty Hickson was our teacher. Miss Hickson just passed away this past year, and we lost a great lady. And Miss Hickson, she, she taught twelfth uh, grade history, well, taught just high school history, and was the twelfth grade sponsor for decades. She was a fixture in Troy, Alabama, and an unforgettable lady. And she was, among other things, responsible for an event during the second semester of every year. Our little school, we didn't have. Uh, the arts, and we didn't have theater class, and so the closest thing to that that we had was the senior class put on a production every year. It was kind of a rite of passage. Before you'd graduate, the senior class had to do a major production. And so when I was a senior and our time came, I remember the day that Miss Hickson came in and announced, it is time to begin work on the senior play. And she had a stack of, of the um, play booklets that uh, she had chosen to play for that year. Uh, some of you are old enough, you'll remember this one. It was Arsenic and Old Lace. It was the one that uh, Capra made into a movie uh, starring Cary Grant in 1944. Still a, just a, a great romantic comedy. You'll catch it on AMC sometimes. And so they showed us the movie version of it, and they handed out the little playbooklets. Well, I'll just tell you, my dad was a man who was in our family known for some of his sayings that he would repeat again and again. And one of dad's famous sayings within the family was, Son, a man's got to know his limitations. So that's one of the things that I lived by. And I knew this as a 12th grader. I had never been an actor on stage before. And I figured if I made it that far in life and had done okay, I didn't need to take any big chances as a 12th grader. I only had a few months left to get out as unscathed as possible. And so when the senior class play rolled around, I thought, I know my limitations. I'm not going to be on stage. So Henry and I and our other closest friend, we conferred together and we said... We're not actors. We are not going to be in the senior play. We will just help with the play behind the scenes. We'll build sets or whatever off stage. And, but I remember on the day that Miss Hickson introduced the play, she hands out the, the scripts, and she is asking for volunteers to read for the different parts. And, of course, kids are clamoring for the different roles. And 
kids are reading for the different parts in the play. And she's just, at that point, just hearing people read the different parts. And she gets to the starring role. It's Mortimer Brewster. It's the Cary Grant part. And she's, you know, looking for volunteers for that. And they're to it. But she seems sort of disinterested in the volunteers. And I will never forget. She picked me out and said, Mark Price, I think you need to read for this part. And I was sincere when I said, Miss Hickson, I don't want to. I, I, I just want to help behind the scenes. I don't want to be an actor. Would love to help any other way that I can. And Miss Hickson, I know you didn't know her, but she was a lady you did not say no to. She said, no, I've thought about it, and I think you should read for the part. And I tried again. I said, I don't want the part, Miss Hickson. And she said, well, you don't have to take it. I just want you to read today. Just help us out by reading the part. I said, I'll, I'll do that, Miss Hickson. So we all read our parts, and she said, I'm going to go home and think about it, and I'll come back and announce who got what. What role? Well, you know where this is going. So she comes back the next day, and she's naming off who's been given what part in the play. And she gets to the, the Cary Grant character, Mortimer Brewster, and she said, Mark Price, I want you to take that part. And I'm still going, I don't want the part. She said, no, I've thought about it, and you're right for the part. You'll do a good job with it, and I want you to have it. And something clicked in me when she did that. I didn't think that I could do it. I didn't believe that I could do it because I'd never done this before. I didn't want to be on a stage. I didn't want standing on me. That just didn't sound appealing. But when somebody that I respected looked at me and said, I picked you. I've chosen you. I believe you're right for the part. I think you'll do a great job with it. Something inside me just clicked. And suddenly, something that had frightened me excited me. And I want you to know from that point going forward, I took that thing as seriously as if we were preparing for Broadway. And it ended up being truly the most fun experience I had in all of high school. Now, it didn't hurt that it was a romantic comedy and there were some kissing scenes in the whole thing. That was a bonus I was not aware of before we were given the script. So that sort of raised the bar a little bit. But apart from that, it just ended up being such a blast. And every time we performed, it just was more fun. And I remember being so sad when we did it for the last time. This thing that I wanted no part, I wasn't cut out for that. God has an interesting way of putting us in places that prepare us for our calling. Interesting that I didn't want to ever have to be on a stage with light shining on me and people looking at me, and I discovered a great joy and thrill in doing this thing that I wasn't looking to do. In just kind of a crude way, it was a first experience with being called and chosen and discovering the excitement that comes with being chosen. I came to find out over time that there was a calling and a choosing that went far beyond arsenic and old lace, that went far beyond a high school person that was a big part of, of what God had for me in life. You see, the truth of the matter is, calling is a huge part of what makes us different and unique in life. God has a calling. In fact, He has multiple callings for your life. They are unique to you. And it's a huge part of what is supposed to set you apart and make you different in the world. Because God's calling for you isn't quite like His calling for anyone else. It's interesting when we talk about this in the church. A lot of people get excited and others get really uptight. 
I've heard people voice again and again, I just wish I knew what God's calling was for me. I see other people who are so thrilled about their calling. I wonder this morning how many people would be just juiced if they could just know what something that God had uniquely called them to do. I'm just curious, by a show of hands, how many of you, if you could walk out that door today knowing that God had specifically called you to something and said, it's for you. John, this is something I didn't just call everybody to. I called you, John, to do this thing. How many of you would sign up for that, would say, I want it today. I want to know God's calling on my life. That's what we're going to press into today. Peter, both of his letters... First and Second Peter, if we just took the time today to just read through, through those little letters again and again, there are a couple of different things that you would notice that he repeats over and over. You already know one of them because you've heard it every week. He keeps talking about how you don't belong here. You're foreigners, you're aliens, you're exiles. The other thing that you just hear over and over and over is you're called. There's a calling. You've been chosen. You've been called by God and set apart uniquely to this thing that he has you assigned to do. We want to press into that and come to know some, in some really personal ways what it is that God has called each of us to do. So as we think about that, I want to just first point out that when we press into the call of God, you're going to discover from Scripture and just in life that there are at least three kinds of calls that God makes on every one of His children. And I'm sorry, I know this mic keeps going in and out. I hope that's not bugging you as much as it's bugging me, but we're going to get this thing fixed this week. We think we know what's wrong. We're going to get it fixed. But three different kinds of calls that God places on our lives. I want to just point each of them out to you briefly. And the first one is this. If you've got your outline, you can go ahead and be following along here. That The first call that we receive is an eternal call to Jesus for salvation. You get that. That to belong to the family of God, the only way that you get in is if Jesus chooses you and calls you in. I think a lot of people don't recognize that. I think we feel like we have to choose to join Jesus' team, and that is not how it works. You couldn't choose to be on Jesus' side because you were born in the world dead in sin. Separated from God, and your flesh is just like my old rotten, stinking flesh. It would never choose God. It would always choose me. It would choose what's comfortable for me, what's easy for me. We would never choose God. We have to be chosen and called by God. Peter knew what that was like. His story, at least in parts, recorded in Luke 5. Do you remember that one? He had been out with his uh, brother and with their partners, James and John, fishing all night long. Hadn't caught a thing. They came back the next morning. You can only imagine how frustrated and exhausted they were. They were washing their nets. They were getting ready to put it all away and go crash and get some sleep. And here comes this strange rabbi with a huge crowd following him, walks right up to where Peter's washing his nets and hops in Peter's boat. Says, you mind putting out a little bit here so I can teach from your boat? And uh, Peter's like, sure, whatever. And he lets Jesus use his boat. Jesus gets through teaching. And Jesus, who is not a fisherman, looks at Peter, who is the exhausted fisherman, and says, let's put out in the deep water and put down your nets for a catch. And Peter's like, dude, you do not get it. We've been out there all night long. They're not there today. We'll come back again tonight, but not today. No, you need to put out to deep water for a great catch. And Something just clicked for Peter. 
I'm supposed to do what this guy is saying. There's something different about this guy. He did so, and they had a catch like they had never had in their lives. They nearly sunk the boats trying to get all of the fish in. And Peter realized in this exchange, oh, my goodness, this isn't just some other traveling fisherman I've encountered. I've come in contact with something supernatural. And Luke 5 records that Peter fell to his knees and just sort of held on to Jesus and said, Lord, depart from me because I am a sinful man. There's something that just rings so familiar and true about that. You see, Peter in this exchange was going to hear the call from Jesus. Peter, I want you to leave your boat and your nets and I want you to come follow me. I'm going to teach you to fish for men. It was the call of Jesus on his life to a totally different way of life. It was the call to salvation, to become a follower of Jesus. And in that moment of time, Peter became so keenly aware of his own sin. I remember vividly the night that God called me to salvation. I was just a kid. I was a church kid from a church family. I'd always been taught to read my Bible and say my prayers. And I did that faithfully. It was a ritual. It was a good ritual, but it was a ritual. Until that night, alone in my bedroom, God called. I don't know why he picked that night. I have no earthly idea. I couldn't tell you any of the other circumstances surrounding that. But I know on that night in my bedroom at 236 Bryant Street in Brundage, Alabama, that the Spirit of God called me personally. And for the first time, I wasn't saying my prayers. I was having a conversation with God. And in that conversation, I suddenly became so keenly aware of my sin. I don't know what all sins I had committed at that stage in life. As a child, you know, as an adult, looking back at my you know, childish life, they probably today wouldn't look that big. But in that moment, I felt the weight of my sin, period. And realized for the first time, Jesus wanted to forgive my sin and make me a part of his family. And I remember having the longest conversation that I'd ever had with God and waking up the next morning and I couldn't wait to tell my parents about what God had done in my life because for the first time in my life, I had heard God calling my name. Many of you, you could stand and, and tell your story. It wouldn't sound the same as mine, but the heart of it is the same. You heard the call to salvation. I didn't hear it with these ears. It wasn't word for word, some audible message, but I just knew in my heart that God loved me and that there was something broken in me and I needed what Jesus did on the cross to make it right in me. And for the first time, I knew that I was right with God. I wasn't just a kid saying my prayers. It was the call of God to salvation. It goes out to everybody who belongs to the family of God. Jesus said in John 12... And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of when he's raised up on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. You see, that's the call of God, drawing. You know, Jesus said in John 14 that nobody can come to him unless the Father draws them. There you go. You don't get to just decide when and how you're going to do it. Peter spoke of this in Second Peter 1.3 when he says, By his divine power, God has called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And one of the things that I want to make sure that, that we're real clear on today, because 
the enemy will use this to deceive us and lead us down a road that we think we're in control of when we are not. There are some who are listening to what I'm saying today in this room, watching, listening online, that you remember the call of God on your life. You remember when God spoke and you didn't say yes. You remember the conviction. You remember the drawing. You remember feeling like you were supposed to do that, but you didn't say yes to that. And the thing that may have hindered you in that moment of time is the thought, there are some things I want to do first. I want to live my life. There's some wild oats I want to sow. There's some things I want to do that following Jesus in the way of that. And I don't want that to happen. But I'll do it later. When I get through doing some things that I want to do, I know I want to be right with God. And then I'll choose to come back to Him. And here is the thing we'd better be alert to. It's not up to us. We think we're in control of more than we're in control of. Many of us have been lured into thinking, I've heard the gospel. I know the truth. And I'll just choose a more convenient time in life. And when I've done what I want to do, then I'll come to Jesus. It doesn't work that way. You don't come to Jesus unless Jesus calls you. And it is an incredibly arrogant and dangerous thing for us to say, I feel, I hear it, I sense it, that God is calling me, but I'm not ready. Let's be clear about this. Jesus never calls when somebody isn't ready. You may say, wait a minute now, are you sure about that? I'm absolutely sure. The call of God is never random. God is all wise, and when he calls, he knows that you're as ready as you need to be. We may think we're not ready. We may think there's some things that we want to do, but we are ready. And if you sense the call of God, don't dare be so bold as to say, I'm sure he'll call again. Not today. That's why the scripture says, behold, today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, if you hear his voice and you sense him drawing you, today is the day. Don't put him off. Don't turn him away. For some, today may be your day to answer the call to salvation. If you hear his voice, say yes to it. There's a second type of call, and that is when we receive a temporary call to specific assignments that he has for us, specifically uh, the ministry assignments that he gives to us. Now, these may be long or they may be short. It may be in a moment of time or a day or a few days, and sometimes these calls may last for any number of years. One of the things that we need to be real careful of is to understand that when we talk about the call of God, it's not about discovering the one call of God for your life that's going to last from now until Jesus comes back. God has many callings for your life. And the key is to embrace each one of those. We have countless examples in Scripture. I'll just point to a couple of them. In Acts chapter 8, Philip is one of the uh, leading... uh, Disciples of the early church in Jerusalem, and God had a number of temporary assignments for Philip. And one of those 
was to leave where all the action and activity was and to go to one of the most barren places that you could imagine. He just calls him to a road in Gaza. To this day, it is just one of the most God-forsaken places on earth that you could be called to. And I love the description that's given here just because of how much I can relate to it. You probably can too. It just says in Acts 8.26, Now an angel of the Lord, this is God speaking through an angel, said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, and it is that, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. End of call. At least for that point. Don't you just love it when God gives you about a quarter of what you feel like you needed to know. He just points you in a direction and says, get started. I don't know how many times in my life God has done that. And I'm going, did somebody cut the message off in midstream? What's the rest of this, God? That's all Philip got at that point. You just go. Go right now. Get on the road headed to Gaza. What am I going to do when I get there? You'll know when you get there. Go. And so he went. And I'm sure as he's on the road, he's like, would have been nice if they just said, what mile marker on the road to Gaza, you know? It's just, it's a long road. I'm walking the road to Gaza. Now, what am I supposed to do on the road to Gaza? I have no idea. How do you know how to do the will of God when you just do the little bit that you've been given? And he's walking along. You remember what happens next? Here comes a chariot. There's a foreigner in that chariot. It's an Ethiopian. He's a servant of Queen Candace of Ethiopia, and he's reading aloud from the Scriptures. He's reading from Isaiah, prophecies about the Messiah. And as he's reading this, his antennas are up. The Holy Spirit is stirring his heart, and he's like, oh, here we go. I think we're getting warmer. And so he starts running alongside the chariot. It's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I've got a feeling this is going to have something to do with this guy. And he's listening, and he asks the guy, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, well, how can I, unless somebody explains it to me? He's like, well, now I know why I'm on the road to Gaza. How about I do that? And he explains it. He explains how Jesus is the fulfillment of those scriptures. And that man hears the call of God to salvation. He gives his heart and life to Jesus. And Philip baptizes him. And with that, the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Africa because one man heard the call of God to a vague temporary assignment that with the next step of obedience became clearer and clearer and suddenly the gospel has gone to Africa because of one man's obedience to the temporary call of God. And the next thing that happens is God gives a fresh call to a new temporary assignment for Philip. That's a picture of how the call of God often works. It can take on so many different shapes and forms. The call of God for some, a fresh call may have started last week. Butch and I stood up here on the platform at the end of the service last Sunday sharing about, well, in part, sharing about the call of God on Butch's life to lead in missions here at Freedom Church and how God has led us to partner with DCI, this ministry, uh, in a variety of places, but we'll be going to the Yucatan, ministering to the Mayan people there. And as Butch stood up and shared about that last week, there is no doubt in my mind that the call of God went out to a number of people. Oh, it may have started really small in some of your hearts and minds that you just may have in that moment kind of gone, hmm, well, that's interesting. Didn't know that. That's really interesting. And you just sort of filed it away. And you didn't even realize that that was the beginning of the call of God to a fresh assignment. You may have filed it away in the department of, well, I don't have 1300 extra dollars laying around. 
not realizing that part of what God's going to do in the next few weeks and months is teach you a lesson in the fact that wherever God leads, God provides. And with the passing of time, the call of God is going to be just progressively reeling you in. That when you hear that in a couple of weeks we're going to be having our first informational meeting about that, that the call of God just says, you, you need to go to that meeting. Well, I don't even know. I don't know if I can get off. I don't know if I've got the money. And the call of God's just saying, just go to the meeting. Just go to the meeting. And you go to a meeting and you hear more. And it's, I don't have the money. I don't know if I have the time. But the call of keeps reeling you in. That's how the call of God works. Sometimes the call of God comes in the form of, of a no to what we have planned. May may come in relation to this mission trip as a no. You know, some of us go, well, wait a minute. That, that might interfere with my vacation plans for the summer. And God may, first of all, have to say, no, this summer isn't when you're going to take that trip. I've got another trip planned. Paul tells the story in Acts 16 of how he was on one of his missionary journeys, and he had a plan for where he was going next. He had been ministering. He had done a lot of ministry in what today is Turkey. The gospel at that point had stayed in Asia and Africa. And he had mapped out where he was going to take his companions next on the journey. And the Spirit of God just stopped him cold and said, nope, you can't go there. But Lord, we're going to take the gospel there. Not today. Not this month. And so he tried to go elsewhere. And the Spirit of God just stopped him cold. Nope, not there. In Acts 16.9, it says, During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him come over to macedonia and help us and after paul had seen the vision he got ready at once to leave for macedonia concluding that god had called us to preach the gospel to them you may say what's the big deal about that i'll tell you why it's a tremendously big deal this was the call that for the first time took the gospel of jesus to europe so far as we know no one in europe had ever heard and responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ until the call of God led Paul into what is today Greece. And from there it spread across southern Europe. Ultimately the western world knows about Jesus because of the call of God on Paul's life to take the gospel into Europe. Not at that point into India and China and deep into Africa but into Europe. And we know about Jesus as a result of that. It was the call of God that started with just nope. No Paul I don't want you to go there. And no, I don't want you to go there yet. Sometimes the call of God is confusing when it comes in parts. Because all we know is what we had planned to do, that there's something in our gut that just says, don't do that. And our head's going, but I already planned it. And every time you start to move in that direction, something in your gut goes, Mm-mm, don't do that, not today. That may be for a later time, but not right now. That's when you better put your antennas up and go, wait a minute. Maybe God is calling me to a different assignment right now. God has specific assignments for you for this season of life. You're probably already walking in a number of those. You may not have identified them as what they are, calls from God to a particular assignment. You may just feel like, oh, well, it's just what I'm doing right now. Because you may have so instinctively responded to the call of God on your life. At this point in my life, there are a bunch of different calls from God that I'm living in. They're, they're all temporary assignments. Pastoring this church is one of the calls of God on my life. It's a temporary assignment. Don't get me wrong. I'm not looking to go somewhere. 
I just know unless I die young, you know, I'm not going to do this all of my life. I hope I do it for a lot more years, but it's a temporary assignment. Within that, there are a lot of temporary assignments. I'm helping to lead a small group in my house. We host a small group at our house. We've been doing it for a few years, but it's a temporary assignment. We won't do it forever. I'm involved in a discipleship time with, uh, with Charlie and with Stone. We meet together every week. We're working through stuff every week. We'll continue in that. We've been at it for about six months. We'll continue for about another year together. It's a temporary assignment. And we all understand when this year is done, we'll go on and we'll do the same thing with other guys. Prior to them, I had an assignment with other guys here for a year. They were temporary ministry assignments. God had called us to that. There are a variety of different assignments that you have. It may be that part of your specific assignment right now is to be a student. You won't be a student forever. It's a temporary assignment. Maybe God's calling you on a temporary assignment to go on a mission trip or to, to work or to work with children, to open your home for a small group, to lead in a small group. He has a temporary assignment for you, but it's the call of God. He wants to express his life and power through you in that assignment. It's important that we say yes to that. I'm going to go ahead and plant a seed. Those of you who've been around know a part of the call of God for this church. He has calls for people, for families, for churches. Part of his call for this church is to be a church planting church. By God's design, within the next two years, we'll plant a first next congregation. It'll be the first of many plants out of this church that we'll plant a new congregation somewhere else. For some of you, you're not planning it, you're not hoping for it, and the call of God on your life will be to help launch a new church. Some of you, by going and helping to make that happen, it'll be one of God's assignments for you. The call of God takes a variety of shapes. But when you recognize it for what it is, it gives a sense of joy, fulfillment, anticipation, and confidence to know I'm walking in the call of God on my life. And then there is a third kind of call from God. And that is, are you with me so far? Those first two making sense? Do this if you're with me. All right. The third one is this, that we receive a daily call to live by a different standard as God's, what we'll call, minister's own call. Now, I think you'll agree with me that when we start talking about the call of God in our lives, that our first question is, but what is it God wants me to do, right? I mean, we, we're a doing people. What is it God wants me to do? What is God wanting to do through me? There are a couple of things I didn't put in your outline, but they're probably worth writing down so you can go home and chew on this. And the first one is this. God is far more concerned with the who than with the do. I'll say it again. God is always far more concerned with the who, the do. We're talking about discovering who you are ahead of figuring out what it is you're supposed to do. God's way more concerned with you grasping who you are than you, first of all, just figuring out what it is you're supposed to run do for him. And here's the corollary truth that goes with that that you may want to just write down for reflection later and talking about in your small group. And that is, when you know who you are, you'll usually know what you need to do when you walk into each situation. When you really grasp who you are, you'll recognize and know what you need to do when you get into those situations. 
To that end, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He is driving home. you got to know who you are. And you are a chosen people. Can we take just a, a moment to step back from the subject at hand and just consider who it is that Peter's writing to? He's writing essentially to Gentiles in Turkey. And I know we're separated by almost 2,000 years from the time frame that he's writing in. But remember that in the time of the New Testament... All the way back in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years in the Old Testament. Who were the people of God? The Jews. The descendants of Abraham. Who are the chosen ones? It's the Jews. And if you have any doubt about that, ask any Jew. And they will tell you, we are chosen, you are not. We are loved by God, you are not. We are the family of God, you are not. And to all of these people who had always been on the outside looking in, knowing from the scriptures, descendants of Abraham, by God, special, tr- prized possession of God. And to all of these outsiders, they were just the crowd. It is to them that Peter wrote and said, I want you to get this. You are the chosen people. I'm not writing to the Jews. I'm writing to those who've been called by Jesus. You've been the chosen ones. You're the holy nation. I guarantee you, when they're first reading this, they're going, What? Super Jew Peter is writing to me, a part of the hoi polloi, just the masses? And he's telling us, we're the holy nation, we're the chosen people. Oh, he goes way beyond that. He says, you are not only the chosen people in the holy nation, you're a royal priesthood. Okay, I I get it that we don't just immediately go, wow, if you read it in context, you will. I mean, if you're an outsider looking in, the Jews are just such a tiny part of the world's population, and they're the chosen people by God. But even among the Jews, there are some super select. There really are two groups of super select people. You remember there are 12 tribes within that nation. One of the twelve would be the Levites. This is the priestly tribe. And from among that one twelfth, the descendants of Aaron specifically are the ones who get to serve as priests. They are the super spiritual ones, the spiritual giants. They are the ones who get to go into the temple and minister. They're the ones who get to connect with God. and They are the conduit you know, between God and the people. So, you know, to be not just a Jew, but a Levite, not just a Levite, but of the... the family of Aaron and now you get to be a priest man the priesthood is so special there's one other line that's really special among the Jews and that is the royal line the descendants of David those that are to be the movers and shakers for the whole the leaders of the whole nation And in one sentence, in one line, Peter rolls all that together. You are the chosen nation. You are the chosen people. The people of God. But not just the people of God. You are the royal line and you are the priestly line all rolled into one. That's you. Not your preacher. Not your worship leader. You. You're the chosen ones. You're the people of God. You are the royal priesthood. It doesn't get any more select than that. 
Are you beginning to get the point? There is no distinction on earth that is greater than what Peter is laying on every person under the sound of my voice. Somehow we've bought into, and just in general, that there's a hierarchy. I don't know what all the levels are, but we put people in this hierarchy. And I know, you know, we tend to put ministers somewhere in that hierarchy. And, and you know it. I mean, you see it. It's like, oh my goodness, we've run into a ministry opportunity called the official man of God. Somebody's in the hospital, call the man of God. Somebody may be ready to hear the gospel, call the man of God. Guess what? You are the man of God. You are the woman of God. There is nobody on earth. There is nobody in the kingdom with a greater position or a greater standing or a greater calling than what you've got. You're the man of God. You're the woman of God. There is nobody above you but Jesus. Who are you going to call? The call is for you. You see a need... You see somebody who needs to hear the gospel, who needs to be counseled, who needs to be served. The call is on you. The need is the call. God is calling through that person. That person becomes Christ in that moment. Jesus says, when you serve one of the least of these, you've done it unto me. Jesus is calling you. You see a need. You you sense, oh, I better call somebody further up the chain. Somebody closer to Jesus than I am. And Jesus says, guess what? That call is for you. The fact that you realize that there's a need is me calling you you are a chosen people you are a royal priesthood you are a holy nation you who once were nobody now you are the people of god somebody say yes and amen that's good news when you know who you are you'll usually know what to do Because you see, when you walk into a situation and you understand, I'm God's man, I'm God's woman, I am the minister on call in this situation, and you encounter a need, you're not going, oh my goodness, who should I call? Do I call my small group leader? Do I call my pastor? Do I call my worship leader? Who who do I call? What should I do? You realize in that moment, here's a need, and here's with the Holy Spirit, got the call of God on their life, hmm, I think I know what to do. I need to step in and be Jesus in this situation and do exactly what Jesus would do. we got a situation that needs super power outpoured. That's good because I'm full of the Holy Ghost. Why don't we just pray some down right here over this situation because God would just as gladly express His power through me, a part of the royal priesthood, as He would over anybody else. That's good news. I know there are some of us right now going, I ain't sure this right. And the truth be told, there are some of us going, I am much more comfortable with the old plan. Call a preacher, call a small group leader, call somebody. The Pope hadn't got anything on any one of you. And I'll guarantee you the pastor doesn't. You have been called by God. Now... I'm going to just wrap this up quickly. I know I'm about out of time. But Peter spells out three different specific ways that the call of God should shape our lives so that we live differently every day as we daily respond to the call of God in our lives. So I didn't put these in your outline per se. I'm just going to run through them very quickly. 
If you want to jot them down, that's fine. If you just want to listen, that's fine. But the three different distinctions, because again, remember the whole theme, dare to be different. Here's three ways that responding to the call of God on a daily basis will make you different that Peter spells out in the verses that we read. And the first one is this, it will cause you to live a life of moral integrity. A life of moral integrity. He says, dear friends, uh, you're like visitors and strangers in this world, like refugees. So I beg you, keep your lives free from the evil things that you want to do. Those desires that fight against your true selves. Who's your true self? Your true self is that you're the man or woman of God, made in the image of God, filled with the Spirit of God, called to ministry. And yet, every single one of us... We feel these evil desires. I've got them. I've got just as many as you've got. I'm not going to stand here and confess mine to you this morning either, so you can go ahead and hang that one up. I'm just like you. I'm drawn toward evil just like you are. And the devil comes along and he says to me the same junk he says to you. God's not going to use you because you've got all these evil desires in you. Guess what, devil? We've all got them. Jesus is aware of them. And he is redeeming us. And in spite of them, he's still using us. And the fact that you've got evil desires doesn't mean that you can't live beyond them. And it doesn't negate the call of God on your life. Peter just says, you're going to have evil desires. You walk with integrity in spite of those evil desires. The good news is one day you get to go to heaven and leave those evil desires behind. As long as you're here, you'll wrestle with those, but you don't have to live by them. The call of God means you choose to walk with integrity. second thing that it means is that you don't just say no to evil desires, but you say yes to doing good in the lives of others. He goes on to say, uh, people who don't believe are living all around you, and they are in Baldwin County. And they may say that you're doing wrong. So you've got to guard against those, those evil desires. So live such good lives that they will see the good that you do and they'll give glory to God on the day that he comes. It's not enough to try and live a, a morally right life. You've got to look for opportunities to be a difference maker. You've got to look for opportunities to be an extravagant giver. The call of God on your life may show up in the grocery store line this week where you see the person ahead of you is a little bit short. And the call of God right now is to be a store purchaser and you buy some groceries or some, for somebody ahead of you or behind you. And that was the call of God, not just to abstain from evil, but to do good. You, you may recognize that you've got a neighbor who's down with the flu. Let me go ahead and tell you, you do. Unless you live on an island, you've got a neighbor with the flu. And the call of God may be to come help with them with, with some yard work or to, to make them a soup or something. And it was the call of God for you to get busy in the kitchen or to get busy in the yard to do good. The call of God isn't just to refrain from evil. It is to do good in the lives of others. And the third and final thing is the call of God on a daily basis means that we don't retaliate against those who oppose us. We said we're going to look different from the world. This is one of the easiest ways to recognize those who live under the call of God. He says, if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God's pleased with you. For God called you. There he is. God called you to do good even if it means suffering, just as Jesus Christ suffered for you. He's your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He didn't retaliate when he was insulted. That is so hard to do. He didn't threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. 
He goes on to say in the next chapter, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do. And he will grant you his blessing. When you're in the midst of trying to live differently in a dark world, you would think people would stand up and cheer, but they will not. They'll accuse you of all kinds of things that aren't true. They'll point a finger at you and say they are so different. And it won't be to applaud you. It's always been that way for Christians. You know what it was for first century Christians? That they were believed to be uh, superstitious, incestuous cannibals. Do you know that? All three of those were, were reported of the early Christians. That they were superstitious, incestuous, and cannibals. You see, they were believed to be in, uh, superstitious because of all of the miracles that they performed. They had the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they were believed, it was believed that they believed in magic and that Jesus was the chief, magi- chief magician. And so they were all these superstitious people. And they were believed to be incestuous because they were all the time talking about, you know, come to our love feast. They were always having these love feasts and inviting all of their brothers and sisters to the love feast. And so they were believed to be, you know... They were reported to be incestuous, to having all this love going on between the brothers and the sisters. And worst of all, they were cannibals because they were all the time getting together to eat flesh and drink blood. And we can kind of laugh about that. But in a world where there was no internet or television and there was just a little bit of talk about who are these followers of the way that burned down Rome? Were reported to have burned down Rome. Oh, they're terrible people. They're superstitious. They, they do love in strange ways. They have love feasts and they eat flesh and they drink blood. You want to stay away from them. Well, today, you don't have to go any further than the Internet or the coffee shop to hear what a wacky bunch of Christians go to Freedom Church. You, you seek to do good. You seek to live a morally different life and you will be criticized. You will be misunderstood. And Peter. Part of the call of God on your life is you must follow the example of Jesus who never fought back, who never retaliated to defend himself. And this is part of what sets you apart as different. You entrust yourself to the hands of God who judges justly. And the world will see the difference when you don't fight back and defend yourself. God has a calling for your life. He has a number of callings on your life. He's called you to salvation. He's called you to a number of ministry assignments. But he's also called you every moment of every day to be his minister on call. The first two churches that I served in a ministerial capacity, I say it that way because I was my first two church positions were as janitor of two different churches. The next things that I did where I had minister in the title were large churches. The first one was a large church in Tuscaloosa, and then the First Baptist Fairhope was the next one. Both of those large churches, the one in Tuscaloosa, had thousands of members. And so with a ministry staff of six full-time pastors, we always had minister on call. You had your day of the week that you were the on-call pastor. That means all the people that are in the hospital, it's your job to go check on them. Whoever has a crisis, that's your, your job because you are the minister on call. And this will kind of date when I started, but... Um, we rotated minister on call for the weekends so that it didn't all fall, you know, with a church of thousands, you didn't want it to all fall on the senior pastor. So they would publish 
the number for the minister on call on any weekend. This was before everybody had a cell phone, so we had beepers. Y'all remember what those were? You, you would pass the beeper. And you could tell who was the minister on call on staff because they were always wearing the beeper. The way you knew God was calling you to a ministry assignment was it went bzzz, And that was the call of God on your hip right there, buzzing you. Because that was your weekend to be the minister on call. Well, I've got a news flash for all of us. You don't need a buzzer. Everybody, every day, is God's minister on call. And you don't need a buzzer because he already planted one deep in your heart. He's not going to make your hip vibrate. He's going he's to put his finger on your heart. And he's going to cause something to stir in you that you feel like, oh, wait a minute. I think I'm supposed to turn around and take a second look and maybe go back and talk to that person. I have a feeling I'm supposed to email or text this person. I feel like maybe I'm supposed to call and, and check on them. And I don't even know why. I'll tell you why. Because there's a call of God on your life. And you are his minister on call every day. And he reserves the right to buzz you at any moment of time. I want to just go ahead and rock your world a little more and tell you this. Some of you won't get out of the building today before God sets off your buzzer. You may not make it through the end of this service before he buzzes you and says, Hey, minister on call, before the final amen is said today, you you may need to go over and just hug somebody's neck and ask if you can pray for them. Because they're hurting And I know it, and I'm letting you know it, and you don't know what they're hurting about, and you don't even have to know it. Just go over and stand next to them and pray over them. You see, his ministers on call are powerful to make a difference in the lives of others. Some of you won't make it through lunch today. You won't get out of the restaurant before God buzzes you and says, I'm calling my minister on call. There's somebody at the next table. They need to know my love for them. And you just don't even need to leave the restaurant without going over and saying, I know you don't know me, but God said he wants you to know that he loves you and that he cares about what's going on in your life right now. And you're thinking, they're going to think I'm crazy. That's okay. The world does think we're crazy. It's time to just get over it and follow the call of God. Would you join me as we turn to him together in prayer? God, we ask you by the power and voice of your Holy Spirit, make your call known. Speak in this room today. Make your call known in our lives. Mobilize an army here. We open ourselves to that. Why don't you do that today? Why don't you just from your own heart say, Lord, I'm open to your call. I want to be on call all the time. I want to get off of the sidelines into the game of ministry. Lord, help me to see the opportunities help me to respond to the call Lord we receive that today you speak and work in our lives please don't let this week pass without calling every single one of us to specific assignments as we encounter people through the day and through the week we embrace that in faith and say yes thank you for the call and the privilege Jesus and we pray this in your name and all of God's people said Amen. Would you stand together?